My name is Suzanne Vogel. I'm the lead pastor here at Meredith Drive Reformed Church. And I am excited to preach this Sunday's installment of our series, Living on God's Time. Now, I don't know about you, but this series has been good for me, but good in that, like, you know, hard kind of way. Because part of our objective in this series is to get God's perspective on not just my life, but on the bigger story of what he's doing. And when I live into that story, when I am reminded of that story, I am invited to be patient, which I don't like. Anybody else feel me? I'm the kind of person who loves to move fast and efficiently and productively from point A to point B. I am unabashedly the person who, when I'm driving down Merle Hay or Meredith Drive Road is watching for, okay, which lane do I actually want to be in today to get there fastest, right? Anybody else doing that? I'm the person at the grocery store who's scoping out like, okay, which line do I want to be in? I know that one, she's got a big cart, but the clerk is snapping. So I think I'll choose that one, right? I am always it's a, it's a sickness, really, it is. And I'm trying to be in recovery. And, and a series like this invites me to slow down. It invites me to understand that God moves in ways that often I don't understand. A lot of times I can't see. And they are simultaneously slower and sometimes faster than I can imagine. So this morning... We are entering into the next phase of the story. Now, this story began with promises God made. The story of God's people began with God making three promises to a man named Abraham. You'll recall that he said, here's the thing. I am going to give Abraham, I'm going to give you a land of your own, a place where your children can plant themselves. You will have children as numerous as the sand. Even though you and your wife are well along in years, that's my promise. And at the end of the day, your children will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Well, this morning, we pick up the story three generations, 200 years later, and there's not much evidence that God has done anything with these three promises. The Israelites don't have a land it's not really clear that the nations are being blessed. And the only one where maybe they've moved the needle at all is in the offspring as numerous as the sand. And Jacob has done his part, his fair share. He's had 12 sons, 12. And six of them were by his first wife, Leah, two of them by Rachel, his second and favorite wife. And then three with Rachel's uh, servant and three with Leah's servant. You know, I'm just going to say again, for the record, you think your family's messed up? I mean, can you imagine the scenario? This is the blended family to the max. And I want to remind you again that following God does not promise or assure healthy family dynamics. Can I get an amen in the house? Yep. This is true. And so it's into this place that we pick up the story of the next generation. Last week we talked about Jacob. And so today 
we pick up the story and we begin in Genesis 37 verses 1 and 2. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. Now, that probably doesn't shock us because we, a lot of us know this story. We've seen Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat or we've maybe watched a Veggie Tales about this or we grew up in a Sunday school where we knew the story. But for the people who heard this story for the very first time, this was shocking because you would expect that the story of the next generation would begin with Reuben, the oldest child, because in the ancient Near East, that oldest child, really the story revolved around them. But we begin to see the first cue that something's different because the story begins with Joseph, not the oldest son, the oldest of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, which should cue you already that there are some messed up family dynamics going on. And in fact, that's the case. Actually, Jacob loves Joseph more than any of his other sons. The scripture says it just that plainly. And Jacob doesn't try to hide that. In fact, he babies Joseph. He hands him a lavish gift that would have been very expensive and would have told not just the rest of the family, but frankly, the whole community, that Joseph was the favorite child. Now, this has two logical consequences. The first is that Joseph grows up to be an entitled, cocky, tattletale of a young man, just flat up. In fact, it says that Jacob would send him out to the fields to check on his brothers because he knew he'd come back and report. Any of you older children have a sibling like that? Don't raise your hand. I did. I did. Um, and so, as you can imagine, the second thing that happens is that his brothers hate him. I mean, it's that clear in the scriptures. It says they despised him. And into this whole dysfunctional stew of mess... God does something surprising. He sends Joseph two dreams. And they're very similar. They both involve Joseph standing in a position of power or authority. And all of his brothers, and in one dream, even his parents, bowing down to him. Now, on the one hand, I think this is beautiful. God is trying to say to a young man in ways that I hope you have heard today, the seniors in the room, you are valuable. Your story matters to God. You have purpose. You have destiny. I think God in these dreams was working to build that into Joseph. But the trouble is, is that 17-year-olds uh, don't always handle blessing well. And Joseph is a good example of that. He doesn't take that and hide it in his heart and have humility. He does something, well, like I said, probably we would guess, right? He comes into the room and he says, hey, guess what? Guys, I had a dream. And in that dream, I was in charge and you all worshipped me. 
How do you think that went? Oh, yeah, it was awful. It was awful. Even Joseph's dad, who thinks he can do no wrong, looks at Joseph and says, say what? What? You think I'm going to worship you? And in his brash arrogance, Joseph begins a whole series of events that are going to end up having significant consequences for everybody involved. So we're going to fly through the next 13 chapters because there are three things I want you to see in the life of Joseph. One of the things that's difficult about this sermon series is that for us who preach, I could preach 20 sermons out of these 17 chapters. It is, or 13 chapters, it is so rich. But we're going to try and preach one sermon that gets you out before the Baptists get to the buffet. Okay, so buckle up. We're going to go fast. The first thing you got to know is that when God calls people, it does not exclude suffering. It includes it. See, nobody wants to amen that one. I noticed, right? See, I think we have this, well, we believe a lie. That if God calls us, if he gives us a dream, if he speaks to us, then, well, it's all going to go smoothly. And it'll work, and it will have favor, and it won't involve suffering. And the Joseph story tells us unequivocally that God's call includes suffering. Because God is more concerned about your character than your comfort. And his call, while he has purposes, he's more interested in who you become than what you do. And so that whole fiasco, the dream thing, it has some natural and logical consequences. His brothers are out watching the sheep, and Jacob does what Jacob did. He sent Joseph to go check on them. Only this time they see him coming, and they say, you know what? Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. They are so sick and tired of all of the drama and the ways that they feel unloved and unseen. They're going to kill him. So they grab him and they throw him in the cistern. Only one of the brothers sees a caravan on the horizon. It's a group of sort of gypsy-like people from that day. And he sees dollar signs. He's like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't have to kill him. Let's sell him. How many of you ever wanted to sell a sibling? They do it. They actually do it. They pull him up. They take that beautiful coat off of him. They rip it up. They dip it in some blood. They sell him for about eight ounces of silver. And they think, win, win, win. We're done with him. We made a little money. We don't have to listen to him brag about his dreams anymore. And he's gone. And so sure enough, Joseph ends up in a caravan on a 300-mile journey to Egypt. Gone is daddy's protection. Gone is his favor and his status. And instead, he is walking from here to the middle of Nebraska in chains. Did, did you hear me? That's a long walk. And I get I would bet he had nothing but time to think about the mistakes he'd made. Why? Why did I have to brag? Why did I have to be such a jerk? 
Can you imagine that? I'm guessing, actually, you probably can. Because I'm guessing that maybe a few people in this room have done something, said something, moved out of impulse and sin in ways that brought conflict and set off a whole chain reaction of events that you couldn't control and had no idea how they would end. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm just guessing there's a couple of us in the room who've had that happen. And so Joseph makes his way to Egypt, where he is sold again, this time to an Egyptian, a man named Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, and he goes to work as a slave. And he works hard, and he's responsible. And pretty soon, Potiphar says, this, this, Egypt, this Israelite, he's the real deal. And before long, things start looking up, and Joseph's in charge of the whole house. And he works hard, and he's running everything. And it's all starting to click until Potiphar's wife notices him. And Potiphar's wife notices him, and she thinks, I want some of that. And she pursues him. And she tries to get him to go to bed with her. Only Joseph stands in integrity and says, no, no, I'm not doing it. And at one point, she gets so aggressive that she, he literally runs out of the house. She grabs his coat, and she's so frustrated and angry that she screams and accuses him of trying to assault her. And as you can imagine, Potiphar, hearing that and seeing the evidence, throws Joseph into jail. It says he put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And once again, Joseph is in the darkness, wondering, where is God? And what did I do to deserve this? Am I being punished? Did I screw it all up? I mean, I can't imagine the things that went through his mind. But I'm guessing maybe you can. Maybe you've been in a situation where you worked hard and you tried to do the right thing and you worked and were hoping that maybe you were making some effort and then, bam, something happens and you find yourself down in the dark, betrayed, wondering where God is at. Maybe Joseph is the only one. I suspect not. So Joseph, once again, alone. And I can't imagine at this point that he is not struggling. But once again, things start to look up because Joseph actually works hard and he works to bring blessing and the head warden sees what Potiphar saw a man of honor and integrity and pretty soon the whole place is under Joseph's command and then one day two prisoners arrived two prisoners who were the employees of Pharaoh himself one a baker and one a cupbearer to the king a kind of head of security guy the two of them both have a dream. Are you hearing a subtext? And they come to Joseph. Actually, Joseph notices that this, these dreams bother them. And he says, can I help? 
And sure enough, he interprets the dreams. He says, I got good news and I got bad news. Cupbearer, good news for you. In three days, you're going to get back to your old job. The king will forget. You're moving on. Baker, three days, journey's done. You're dead. And sure enough, the dreams come true. And in that place, Joseph says to the cupbearer, because he realizes maybe this is his moment. Maybe he's going to get justice. Maybe now he's sort of networked to somebody who might have an in. And so he says to the cupbearer, remember me. When God restores you, just mention my name. Put in a good word. Here's my resume. Only, guess what happened? Genesis 39 or Genesis 40, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot. Can you imagine? Two more years, Joseph sits in that cell. Two more years, wondering if he will ever get out. Thirteen years since he had his dreams sits in the dark and wonders, what did I do? Is God even awake? Does he remember me? Does he know my name? And it's interesting because one of the themes throughout these chapters is a little phrase that is said over and over again. And the Lord was with Joseph. See, even though it doesn't circumstantially look like God is doing anything, God is with Joseph in the dark, working ahead of him in ways that he can't see and doesn't understand in this moment. And that's why, in some ways, suffering, this is point number two, always invites us into a critical choice. Because in the midst of suffering, our circumstances don't match the promises. Can I get an amen in the house? Right? Our circumstances don't match our promises. And so we have to ask, how are we going to respond in this place? And one of the things I want you to see is that over and over and over again, Joseph chooses blessing. For example, I wouldn't have blamed him a bit after he got sold by his brothers if he had if it had been me, if he had curled into a ball of self-hatred and shame and guilt and anger, if he would have left the road trip bitter and determined to just put his head down and take care of me. And instead, what we see is that he chooses to bless Potiphar and it says the blessing of the Lord was on any, everything Potiphar had, both in the house and the field. Do you know why that's true? It's because Joseph chose to bless Potiphar and to work hard. He chose blessing. And even though that blessing comes with some temptation. And again, I can imagine if I were Joseph and Potiphar's wife starts making eyes at me, I imagine that it wouldn't be too hard to say, you know what, I have suffered a lot. I have had so much taken from me. I deserve a little pleasure. 
Potiphar will never know. And it would have been easy for him to stand and invite and respond. Instead, what we see is that he says to Potiphar's wife, my master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph stands in his integrity and trusts God's ways. He refuses to compromise. And he stands in his honor, even though it ends up costing him his freedom. He had a choice. He had a choice. Would he follow God's ways or would he compromise? And then he gets into the prison. And it would have been so easy. Again, I wouldn't have blamed Joseph if he'd said, okay, here, forget it. Nice guys don't win. It is just about me now. I am going to look out for me. I am going to focus on, and I'm not, I'm not trusting anybody ever again. And instead, he works hard. And I love this verse. It's when he comes into contact with the cupbearer and the baker. Look at what it says. Then Joseph came to them the next morning. He saw they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house. How do you look sad today? When he had a right to blow the rest of the world off, he is still looking out for others. He is still paying attention and asking and having compassion and bringing blessings. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could have done that. See, in the midst of the darkness, we are invited to let go of faith, to distrust the promises. And yet we see Joseph standing with humility and integrity and compassion. He is letting the suffering shape him into the man God has called him to be instead of letting the suffering make him bitter and hard. And that, my friends, is a beautiful thing when we can let that happen. Because let's be honest, the tension between God's promises and how God leads is painful. And when evil and suffering come, God invites us not to move into self-protection or self-leadership, but instead to bless those who persecute us to bless and not curse, which is a hard thing to do. And yet, if we will trust God's purposes, if we will trust that God has not fallen asleep at the wheel, if we can trust that God has his ways and his things that are beyond us, what we can actually end up experiencing is that God's purposes are bigger than my story and your story and the story of our enemies. See, Joseph faces one last choice in this story. The Pharaoh has a dream, actually two of them. And he can't figure out what they mean. And he asks all of his wise men and counselors, and they don't know what it means. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers, wait a minute, there's this guy named Joseph. And so Joseph gets called up in front of Pharaoh to hear the king's two dreams. 
Now, once again, I want you to put yourself, can you imagine being in this moment? You are standing in front of the king in a place that has made your life horrible for the last decade. You have been enslaved. You have been falsely accused. You have been rotting in this very king's prison. And now he wants your help. What would you choose? What would you choose? I want to believe I would choose what good, but I don't know. What Joseph does is he looks at Pharaoh and says, tell me your dream because God, God, not me, God can figure this out. And so sure enough, the Pharaoh tells him his dream. Joseph says, hey, God's warning you. There's going to be seven years of abundance and then there's going to be seven years of famine. So here's what I'd encourage you to do. Stockpile for those seven years. Bring it all in the barn so that when the famine comes, there'll be food for you to eat. And he gives Pharaoh not just the interpretation, he gives him the plan. He moves in such a way to save Egypt and to save the nations. And you can't tell me he knew that Pharaoh was going to promote him. We know that. I bet Joseph had no idea. Joseph just chose to bless. And in the midst of that, Pharaoh looks at him and says, you sound like the right guy. And before we know it, Joseph has come full circle. And he stands and stands in a position of authority. He helps the Egyptians save seven years worth of grain and excess. And at the end of the day, it says that the whole world was in famine, the whole known world at that time. And the only people who had food were the Egyptians. Remember that promise that God made? Your offspring will be a blessing to the nations. Joseph is actually fulfilling the promise. And the beautiful part is that his dream actually comes true. See, because the nations included Jacob and his sons. And they come to Joseph two years into the famine, 20 years after the dreams. And they don't recognize him. And they bow. Once again, what would you have done? I want to believe I'd have been a bigger person. I suspect that I might have wanted to say, hey, guys, I told you so. Right? But instead, Joseph looks at them because now all of that suffering, all of that trust, all of that space where he has walked with God comes into fruition and he looks at his brothers and he says i'm going to read it from chapter 41 45 come close to me i'm your brother joseph the one you sold into egypt do not be distressed do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that god sent you ahead of me for two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing or reaping. 
But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you and to preserve a remnant on the earth. See, Joseph, at the end of the day, can look back and see that God's purposes and plans were so much bigger than he could have imagined. Now, I don't know where you are in your story today. You might be struggling with the consequences of your sin. You might be wondering if God's even awake. You might be wrestling with betrayal and a loss of hope. You might be in the dark, wondering if God sees you at all. And what I want you to hear today is that no matter where you are in your story, God sees you. And God has plans and purposes, not just for you, but for the world around us. Let's pray. God, this morning, I thank you for the ways that you have called and invited us. And I pray that for those this morning who sit in the dark, who feel trapped by their circumstances, enslaved by the circumstances they did not choose. For those of us who are aware of our sin and ways that we have to live in the consequences of it now. For those of us who wonder if you are even present, pray that today you, God, would remind us that You are the one who said you would never leave us. You would never forsake us. You would be with us in the darkness. God, would you make us a people who choose to be a blessing to the world around us, who choose to work and live with integrity and faithfulness and compassion, who choose forgiveness and redemption instead of cursing God, we love you. And the only way this happens is if we just keep our eyes focused on you. So come and pour out your hope. Come and pour out and encourage us again to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. 